Good morning, church. I love when I'm, I'm almost prevented from getting up here because of your generosity. It's so overwhelming. I almost couldn't even get up the stairs. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity that you show year after year, day after day. As always, I love you. I'm so incredibly thankful for each and every one of you. We're starting a new series this morning I'm excited about, and it's got me thinking about back when Holly and I were first expecting our first child. We read, as probably many of you did, the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I imagine a lot of parents read that. We read it and probably reread it, and especially Holly. I'm sure she dog-eared many of the pages and highlighted a bunch of stuff and underlined a bunch of stuff. We bought everything that people told us we needed to have. We prepared in every way we knew how to prepare. In fact, we went to the hospital and toured the hospital, prepaid for our dog. Actually, the boys would later come to refer to the hospital as the baby store. I like that. I didn't ask their permission. I hope it's okay that I said that. Uh, cutest thing ever, but the baby store. So we went to the baby store, and we, we prepaid for our doctor and, and all of those things. We did everything that we knew to do to prepare for our child's arrival. But... When he got here and when Noah, our second son, got here, we found that there were still a lot of things we were not prepared for. And I say all that to say that even when you know that someone is coming, you can still be caught unprepared, right? Even when you know that someone is coming, you can still be caught unprepared. Now, as Christians, we believe that right now in 2023, we are living in between the two most significant the two most significant events the first coming of jesus and the second coming of jesus the first arrival of jesus and the second arrival of jesus as many say the first advent of jesus and the second advent of jesus we believe that we are somewhere in between those two events And so we can look back at the people who were there during Jesus' first arrival. And we can look and we can say, some people were prepared for his coming. Because they knew, many people knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that God was going to send a savior. God was going to send a king. God was going to send a redeemer, a a deliverer, and there were some people who were prepared, and there were other people who were unprepared. And we can look at their lives, and we can ask ourselves, as we reflect, we can ask, how much do you have in common with those who were prepared for the Messiah's arrival? As you look at the, the people who were prepared for his first arrival, Start to wonder and think about and reflect on what sort of people were prepared for Jesus' first coming, his first arrival. And then look at your own life and say, am I like those people? Am I like the people who were prepared for his first coming? Because if you are like them, chances are you will be prepared for his second coming for his second arrival as we wait for him to come again we have to ask ourselves are we prepared 
And one of the best ways to ask ourselves that and come to the right conclusions is look back and say, who was prepared for his first coming? Who was prepared for his first arrival? And ask ourselves, how much do I have in common with those people? Or, by contrast, am I more like the people who were not prepared for his arrival? Because most people were not prepared for the Messiah to come. And they were caught unprepared. And we don't want to be like those people. We want to be like the people who were prepared, don't we? We want to be like those who are ready, who are anxious, who are waiting for him to come again. And, and, and so we have to look back and say, what does it look like to be ready for the king to come? And there's probably no one, arguably, no one who was more prepared for the Messiah to come than the person God chose to be the mother of the Messiah. Can you imagine that God picked one young lady and said, you will be the mother of the Lord. She was, in many ways, the most prepared for his coming. So let's think about Mary this morning. Look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Now we'll kind of go back and think about Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were the parents of John the baptizer. We'll talk more about that next week and a little bit this morning. But I want us to focus this morning on Mary and on her story. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I mean, there's so many, so many details packed into this account. First, he comes to a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a tiny little place. In fact, there's probably more people in this room right now than lived in Nazareth at the time Jesus was born. This was a tiny little nothing town. In fact, later someone would ask, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This place is not the kind of place that a king or a king's parents would be from. But yet that's precisely why God chose someone from Nazareth. And then there's Mary. Mary is nobody. By the world's standards, she is nobody. She is a poor young lady. She is probably a teenager. She is nobody that anyone would consider significant or important. In fact, if you were to look at sort of the, the Roman scale, the social ladder, there's probably no one who would be lower on the social ladder than a young Jewish unmarried teenager. She is probably at the very bottom of the social ladder. No one would look at her and think, this is an important person. This is a significant person. This is a person who was at the very bottom of the social ladder at the time. And then what does Gabriel say to Mary? He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
And if we're familiar with the story of Scripture, we might think back to another time that an angel came and said to someone something very similar. In fact, when the angel came to a man named Gideon, the angel said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon was probably just as shocked as Mary was at this kind of a greeting. You're saying this to me? To me? In fact, the angel would go on to tell Gideon, you're going to save your people. And Gideon would would look at the angel and say, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And this is probably exactly how Mary feels at this greeting from an angel of God. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you, with me, nothing, nothing. Me? You got the wrong address here, Gabriel. You're talking to the wrong person here. Who who do you think you're talking to? I'm nobody. See, this is exactly what the gospel is all about. And this is exactly what so often we miss or we overlook. Maybe because of our social status. Because of our place in culture. Because of the way that we live our lives, we miss the fact that this is precisely why God chose this young lady. Because God loves to choose what the world says, that's foolish. God loves to take the foolish things and make foolish the wisdom of the world. God loves to take the things that the world says, that's weak. God loves to take the weak things in order to shame the strong. God loves to take the poor and shame the wealthy. That's what this story is all about. It's about how God chose this poor young lady at the very bottom of the social ladder and says, you are favored by the Lord. The Lord is with you. And to watch the shock and the amazement on Mary's face. She doesn't think, oh, well, it's about time you showed up. Of course you would pick me. Why wouldn't you pick me? I'm special. That's not what Mary is thinking. She is blown away by what the angel is saying to her. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. When he says favored one, and he says you have found favor, this word favor is grace. Another way to translate that is grace. You have found grace with God. See, we need to understand that these are the kinds of people that God loves to show favor to. These are the kinds of people that God loves to show grace to. These are the kinds of people who receive the grace of God. This story is all about how God loves to choose the weak and the poor, the helpless, the people that the world says are foolish, and he loves to choose them to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the wealthy. think, what, what kind of a story is this? And that's exactly what Mary is thinking 
as well. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What is Gabriel saying to her? You are going to be the mother of the king everyone has been waiting for. The king that your people have talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years. The descendant of David who will ascend to the throne and will rule over the kingdom of God forever. The Messiah, the anointed one, the king, he is going to be your son. You are going to be the mother of the next king of Israel. Not only the next king of Israel, but the forever king of Israel. The one on whom we have put all of our hopes and our expectations. The one Israel has been waiting for you. You. In spite of what you think about yourself. In spite of what anybody else might have said about you. In spite of what anybody else might say about you in the future. You are going to be the mother of the king. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, in that, in that world, it wasn't unique that a king would be called the Son of God. In fact, the emperor of the world at that time was Augustus. And Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar had said that he was a god. And so Augustus Caesar said that he was the son of a god. But what's unique about this story is that this angel has come to the most backwater town in the whole world and found someone at the very bottom of the social ladder and said, you... You are favored by God. God has chosen you to exalt you for you to be the mother of the next king, to be the son of God. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, has, who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Earlier in the, the Luke's gospel account, he had come to Zechariah to say, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, who had been called barren, who was an older lady, she was going to have a child. And her child was going to be John, and he was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the angel says to Mary, hey, with God, nothing is impossible. The fact that Elizabeth was barren or that you're a virgin, this doesn't stop God. God is going to accomplish his, his will through the two of you. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, these are the kinds of people who are prepared for the Messiah's coming. These are the kinds of people the Lord chooses to show his grace, his favor to people who are humble, 
people who are willing to serve, people who surrender themselves and who say, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I surrender. I'm yours. Use me as you see fit, whatever that entails. Verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Of course, Elizabeth is expecting John. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. She shouted out and said, blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you see this uncontrollable joy, just this bubbling over with joy and this humility? This humility. Elizabeth says, why am, why am I granted with this kind of favor that the mother of my Lord would come to my house and I get to be with you who's expecting the Messiah? And the, the baby in Elizabeth's womb is so excited that the baby is even leaping with joy. Do you see what's happened already in Mary's life? How Mary has gone from being just obscure, Someone that the world would look at and say, you're nobody. You're unimportant. You're poor. You're Jewish. You're unmarried. You don't have kids. You're nothing special. You're nothing significant. And now, because of what the Lord has done, because of the Lord's favor, because of the Lord's grace, now she shows up at her relative's house and her relative says to her, why is it granted to me that you would come and be with me? Do you see how the Lord has lifted her up from the place that she was by his favor and grace? Verse 44, for behold, when the sound, this is still Elizabeth speaking, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed. I talk about this quite a bit, I know. But do we see how Jesus, how the gospel, how Elizabeth here, how Mary pretty soon, will redefine what it means to be blessed. Because we misuse that word all the time. We use the word blessed like the world uses the word blessed. We think, how blessed I am to be smart. How blessed I am to be beautiful. How blessed I am to be strong. How blessed I am to be rich. How blessed I am to be comfortable. How blessed I am to be not persecuted. And Jesus says, that's not... That's not what that means. That's not what it means to be blessed. That's how the world defines blessedness. Jesus redefines blessedness. Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believes. The people who believe, they're the blessed ones. Jesus will even go on in Luke's account, in his Beatitudes, and will totally redefine blessedness. He'll say crazy things like, blessed are those who are poor. Poor? 
blessed. Jesus, do you know what you're talking about? He says, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. When you say rich people are blessed, you don't understand what it means to be blessed. Jesus, blessed are you who are hungry right now. Blessed are you who are persecuted right now. Because you are the ones, you are the ones who, like Mary, God is going to do something incredibly special with you. You're the ones who are prepared. Do you see? It's the poor people. You're more prepared. It's the hungry people. You're more prepared. It's the persecuted people. You're more prepared. We, we still define blessedness like the world defines blessedness. But the gospel redefines it, turns it upside down. It says, no, it's not the rich and the powerful and the mighty and the smart and the beautiful that are blessed. It's the poor. It's the hungry. It's the persecuted. You're prepared. They were prepared for the first arrival of Jesus, and they're prepared for the second arrival of Jesus. It's always been that way, according to Jesus. It's the poor people, the hungry people, the persecuted people, the weak people, the foolish people. Those are the ones who are prepared for the Messiah. And so Jesus would look at them and say, you're the blessed ones. Don't let the world define blessedness for you. Let Jesus define it for you. And then, of course, Mary bursts out in praise. We call this, this song the Magnificat. And that's the first word in the Latin translation, the, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. And, and this is incredibly similar. If you've got time this afternoon, look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 and read Hannah's prayer. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Go and read Hannah's prayer. And Mary's, Mary's praise is very, very similar. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Why does she say that she's incredibly blessed? Because of her humble estate. This, this phrase, humble estate, it means humiliation. He's looked upon my humiliation. He's looked upon my lowliness. He's looked upon my state of being humble and unimportant. Mary recognizes where she was on the social ladder. She knew that she was on the bottom of the pile. She knew that nobody looked at her life and said, wow, that's the blessed life. Oh, if I could only be like that. Nobody ever thought that about a person like Mary. And she said, me? God has chosen me? God has favored me? Not because I'm smart? Not because I've done some great deeds? Not because I'm, I'm significant according to anybody's standards, but God has chosen me and has lifted me up? This this is amazing. And this changes everything that God has showed his cards. He's indicated these are the kinds of people who are prepared. These are the kinds of people that I have chosen to use. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
I think there's two errors that we need to avoid as we read the Magnificent. On the one hand, it's over-spiritualizing these things. And thinking that Mary isn't talking about the people who are literally mighty and literally rich and literally powerful. That's what she's talking about, isn't it? She's talking about the rich and the mighty and the powerful. The people that everybody else looks to and says, that's the life. Oh, if I could just have that life. The people on top, the people at the, at the top of the ladder. I, I wish that I could be that. I wish that I could have that. And you know who we're talking about, don't you? In fact, if we're real honest, many of us have that life or have been chasing that life. And Mary says, God's changed all that and he has brought down the mighty. He's turned everything upside down now. He has scattered the proud. He's taken the people at the top of the ladder and he's cast them down. And we also need to avoid the, the idea that Mary is calling for some kind of violent revolution. In fact, some people have taken these words and, and used them that way. Mary isn't calling for the people to rise up and tear the people at the top down. She's calling for people to be meek and to understand this is the work of God. Not your work. You, you don't tear down the mighty, but God does. God does. In fact, go on, read with me, verse 53. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Do you notice that she's speaking of these things as they've already happened? She's saying this has already happened. God has already filled the hungry. He has already sent away the rich. He's already helped his servant Israel. He's already brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's already exalted those of humble estate. And you think, well, how is that? How is that? Mary, right now, as, as baby Jesus is still in your womb, and you're going to say that he's already done these things? How is that? By choosing her. By choosing her. He, he passed over all the princesses in the world. He passed over all the beautiful women in the world. He passed over all of the rich women in the world. He passed over all of the mighty women in the world. And he chose Mary. And Mary, through the Holy Spirit, says this changes everything. He's exalted the poor and the humble and he's brought down the mighty. But there's already a not yet sense to this, isn't there? That this is what Jesus is going to preach. This is what Jesus is going to proclaim. This is what Jesus is going to bring about, both now and when he comes again. And those who embrace this and acknowledge this and accept this, they will be the people who are prepared for his second coming. Because at his second coming, he will finish bringing down the mighty. He will finish bringing down the powerful. He will finish bringing down the strong. And he will finish bringing up those of humble estate. This is what the gospel is all about. And this is why it's so hard for people in a comfortable environment to accept the gospel. This is why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Because this is hard for the people at the top to say this is good news. But it's easy for the people at the bottom to understand 
Oh, this is good news. This is good news. And this is why Christians should be the least fancy people in the world, the least ostentatious people in the world, the last people to put on airs. Because what the gospel teaches us is that the world currently is upside down. I was thinking about even bringing a chair up here. I'm not going to do it, but you can picture it. A chair that's upside down, or maybe a table that's upside down, or even a ladder that's upside down. And if you have a ladder that's upside down, and somebody says, oh, that's the way ladders work, and they start climbing that ladder, the higher they go, if you know the ladder's actually upside down, you know they're actually going down, not up. And someday that ladder is going to get turned right side up. And when it does, the people who have built their whole life at the top of that ladder will find themselves cast down. If you sit on a chair that's upside down, if you build a life on a table that's upside down, someday that table's going to get set right side up and the people who have stacked their life on top of it will be unprepared. But the people who said, listen, that ladder's upside down. That table's upside down. That chair's upside down. The world is upside down. I'm not going to build my life on an upside down system. The people who recognize that are prepared for it to be set right side up. And Mary says, by choosing me, God has already begun to turn things right side up. God has already begun to cast down the rich and the powerful and to lift up those of humble estate. So Jesus would say, those of you who are blessed enough to have been humbled by life, consider yourself blessed. If life has humbled you, then consider yourself blessed. You say, well, what about those of us that haven't been humbled by life? What about those of us that happen to be born with stuff? What about us? Here's what Jesus would say. Look at Luke 14 and verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what do you do? If you were unfortunate enough to be born at the top, then you have to intentionally humble yourself. And this is hard work, isn't it? To humble yourself. You have to cast yourself down before the Lord does. You have to bring yourself down from that upside-down ladder before it gets set right side up. You have to recognize, I'm not ready for the Lord's coming because I've built quite a life on an upside-down world. You have to intentionally bring yourself down. So we prepare him room. We prepare room for the Messiah. We prepare him room by humbling ourselves. We prepare him room by humbling ourselves. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to humble ourselves? I want to give you a few suggestions. You might think of a thousand more, but I want to give you a few suggestions. Number one, do a good deed anonymously. Especially, especially, it's especially humbling when somebody else accidentally gets credit for the thing you did. When you do a good deed and somebody says, oh, I bet it was them. I bet it was this guy. And you're thinking, no, it was me. It was me. Let it go. Let them get credit for something you did. That, that will humble you. 
Number two, get rid of a status symbol or a possession of which you're particularly proud. Get rid of a status symbol. Only you know, only you know what you were thinking when you bought that watch. Only you know how you feel about that purse. Only you know what you, you think about that suit of clothes. Only you know what you think about that car. Only you know what you think about that house. But if, if you are putting your pride in it, if you bought that thing or you hold on to that thing or you display that thing so that other people will know you've arrived, you are somebody, then you need to humble yourself. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Let it, let it go. And do we, do we recognize how freeing this is to stop trying to impress people with how much you know or how much you have or what you've accomplished? See, this is why Christians should be the least fancy people, the, the last people in the world to put on airs the last people in the world to try to impress someone with clothes or possessions or cars or houses because we know that those kinds of things, those status symbols to say, hey, look at me, I've climbed up the ladder. We know the orientation of the ladder. We know the ladder's upside down. And we know someday soon the ladder will be set right side up. And everybody at the top of the upside down ladder is going to be cast down. Number three, show kindness to someone who has been unkind to you. When you turn the other cheek, when someone forces you to go a mile and you go two, when somebody has been particularly rude or unkind to you and you return their reviling with blessings, it, it blesses them, but it also humbles you. When you refuse to get even, when you refuse to even defend yourself, and you're kind to people who have been unkind to you. It is a humbling act. Number four, ask for help without trying to hide your ignorance or weakness. We, we have a talent, don't we? I do. I know you probably do too for asking for help, but, but kind of twisting it a little bit so we, we disguise our weakness or our ignorance. We say, well, I, I know how to do this or I could do this, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to help me with this. We disguise it, don't we? What if we just went to each other in complete vulnerability say, I don't know. I don't know and I need help. I don't know how to do this. I'm weak. I'm ignorant. I don't know. Can you help me? Finally, number five, do something that feels beneath you. Find something that you feel like, you know, I'd never say this out loud, but I, I kind of feel like that's beneath me. That someone of my status wouldn't do something like that. Do it. Do it. When you, when you even think anything close to that, it's a, it's a red flag in your mind that says, do that thing. Do that thing that feels beneath you. This is what the gospel is all about. Jesus comes to the poor and the weak and the foolish and the people at the bottom of the ladder and says, you know, I know nobody else will tell you this but you're the blessed ones because you're prepared for this message. And he comes to those at the top and says, if you want, if you want to receive the kingdom, you must humble yourself. So baptism is, isn't it? Baptism is a death and a burial. It's you and I dying to ourselves, 
to saying, I'm not going to chase what I used to chase. I'm not going to pursue what I used to pursue. I'm not going to seek what I used to seek. I'm done. I no longer live. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we're doing when we're baptized. We're, we're dying to self. We're dying to the rat race. We're dying to the pursuits. Because we know, we know that Jesus is coming and that God will exalt the humble and that he will humble the exalted. And so we're preparing for that by humbling ourselves. And it starts with baptism, but it doesn't end there. It's a constant pursuing a lower position, a constant pursuit of humbling ourselves. And sometimes what we need to do is confess to one another and pray for one another. Let's do that this week. And maybe, maybe you need to start that this morning. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ. Or maybe you need to confess your sins. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you and pray for you. Our shepherds would love to help you in the prayer room where you can come forward now. Let's together we stand sing the song.